I am going to be speaking through James chapter 5, verse 1 to 6, and I have asked a few of you to read it and tell me what you thought, and I'll be honest with you, Jana saw me, I've had about four sermons this week that I thought were great sermons, and then I would stumble onto something that made me go, I think my idea might not be either biblical or pastoral, and I kind of put a break on it. And Wednesday, Rav and I were talking, and we came to the conclusion that the text we're going to look at is a text that we would be better off to gather the wisdom of the whole church than one individual to say, well, this is what God told me, because I wasn't convinced of it. And saying that, I mean, this is a big theological issue. The Holy Spirit speaks to a church, and together we gather all of the wisdom of God, and we're wiser people together. So that's what we're going to do. Um, I'm going to keep my basic rhythm that we've been doing as we've been one service during this uncertain time. I'm going to quiz kids about stuff we should know, and if the kids are struggling, adults, you're welcome to throw in, too. And... Part of this is my belief that the more we understand the whole story of the Bible, the better we can reason both from the Bible and in our day-by-day -day life. Um, after that, I'm going to introduce you to James chapter 5, verse 1 to 6. Justin, do you got my slides working? If they don't work, I can get by just orally. Okay, I won't say anymore. more. I'm just going to keep going, and whatever's behind me is behind me. Um... So after we quiz the kids, we're going to read James 5, 1 to 6. I'm going to make a few comments, and then we're going to be, I'm going to ask people to gather in tables, and there's some questions in front of you to talk about. Um, oh, and before we take the questions, we're going to take communion together. Nod your head, wave if I'm missing something, if I forget something. Oh, here's another thing. I'm going to try to preach from my mobile phone. I could not figure out how to get my notes to in a way that was saving printer cartridges, and this is the first time I've ever tried this. I might really screw something up. I'm scared to death about it, but my notes are on my mobile phone. Okay, we're going to start kids, and if kids can't remember this, adults hop in. We're going to review stuff. What chapter in the book of Acts did James provide leadership as the church made a decision about what parts of the Jewish gospel the Gentiles must continue as Christians. What chapter is the Jerusalem conference in? Any, okay, adults, anyone know what chapter in Acts has the Jerusalem conference? Chapter 15. Okay, here's an easy one. How many sons did Jacob or Israel have? I'm sure kids know this one. I heard somebody over here say 12, or I thought I did. Well, maybe my bad hearing, but it's 12. Okay. Okay, history is big family, 12 boys, one daughter. They have kids, get married, have kids, have kids, have kids, live 400 years in Egypt. If you're having 12 kids per generation times 400, you're going to become a nation eventually. They become the nation of Israel. They go into what's called the promised land. They end up dividing. There's ten kingdoms that go to the north that are called the ten kingdoms. Ten tribes go to the north called Israel. Two, Judah and Benjamin, the south called Judah. What empire did the northern ten tribes of Israel fall to? 
on Empire. I see somebody raising their hand back there. Is it Maxwell family? No, that's Judah. Northern Canaan tribes fell to Assyria. We'll get you the next question. What empire did the southern two tribes of Judah and Benjamin fall to? Somebody says back here. Babylon, you're right. Okay. Following Israel has fallen to Assyria. A few hundred years later, Judah falls to Babylon. And then they're just sitting there, and empire after empire conquers. What are the next three empires that follow Babylon? Anyone know? Three empires. Persia's one, that's what follows Babylon. Then what falls to Persia? If you watch movies, you'll see stories about this. They're Big stories in the movies. Greece. Okay. Last empire, and this is the one that is in the day of Jesus and Paul and the Apostles. What empire? Tell them. Rome, you're right. Okay. So, with these people, they keep being conquered. They keep being scattered. They have three languages that they write their Bible in. Our Bible. The original document. What are the three languages the Bible's written? Column? You've got it! This kid's smart! Do you know which portion which portions of the Bible are in Aramaic? You know which portions are which? I'll give you a hint. I'll ask next week. Most of the Old Testament's in Hebrew. That's the language the Israelites would use when they didn't speak. A portion of Israel and Daniel are in Aramaic. That's what they would have started changing. They were changing their Hebrew to kind of fit in. That would have been the language they would have used. Then Greek, that's the whole New Testament. Okay. Good. Wander into this. What's the name of the Old Testament? This is a big word. When the Jews took their Hebrew Old Testament and they translated it to Greek, so their kids are going to school at Greek-speaking schools, kind of like maybe you immigrated, your family immigrated from Germany or Russia from Germany, you came to the United States, you spoke German at home, but your kids learned English at school, so they got to be able to read English. The Jews would have been speaking Aramaic, but the kids are learning Greek at school, so they translate their Bible to Greek. What's the name of the Greek Old Testament? Okay, I'll give you this one. I'll ask next week. It's called the Septuagint. And that would have been the the Bible that Jesus would have been reading and the apostles. Okay, one word here that I want is a big word to understand immigration in the whole world today. It's an old Greek word. What's the Greek word that means dispersed? Most translations in English will translate dispersed. I use it a lot. Diaspora. Okay, now we're going to get to just if you pay attention to anything last week. What's the fight song of the Minnesota Vikings? Skull Vikings. Okay, true false. True or false, God loves Vikings fans more than Packers fans. <laughs> this is the, one of the, you know, every time you read the Bible, it kind of convicts your heart. But I grew up in Minnesota. I can tell you all the players in the 70s and 80s. I'm kind of updated now, but. 
slides up. We're going to be in James chapter 5, 1 to 6. It's a tough text to read. It's going to be tempting to read it and think, oh, this is some other people. If you did not know that I'm a textual preacher and I generally just will take a book of the Bible and work it through, if you walked into church today and you were a visitor, you would think, there's a significant disagreement about money going I want you to know a couple of things. I'm completely unaware. There's no disagreement about business or money within our church that I'm aware of. If it's happening, I don't know about it. Nobody sent an email to the audience. We're going to talk about church disagreeing about things. Nothing like that going on. Second thing, I'm going to speak well of North Dakota, but try to think, let's make sure we understand the rest of the world. One of the things that's got me fascinated when we were looking at moving here about 18 months ago, we started thinking about it, was in a lot of parts of the world, it's very difficult to become middle class. The systems are driving things either going to be very wealthy or very poor. And it's becoming increasingly in a lot of places in the United States it's that way. North Dakota is one of the, if I can say, kind of like an economic sweet spot. It's part of the reason that probably before Corona, a lot of people were moving here. A lot of systems and the economy and the natural resources and a lot of individual choices have made North Dakota one of the spots in the world where it's easier to be middle class. Middle class people are growing. But I'm going to say, let's be careful as you read a text that's going to be really about economies that are different than how ours typically functions. Think, oh, we're going to be exception to the rule here. Um, said this before, the text we're going to look at, it's going to make us feel uncomfortable read it and to live it, and there's going to be the temptation, James is going to use the word you or you, you or your, many, many times in six verses, and it's tempting to read it and go, that's not me, that's this group of people, or that's this individual that needs to hear this. Instead, I'm going to say, oh, I'm not on Facebook Live, I'm moving. I'm going to say, be real careful about thinking that's somebody else. Think, how does this apply to me? Now, may I stand up and I'm going to read you the text. I've only got one person that got tired of watching me move. James 5, chapter 1 to 6, I'm going to read from the English Standard Version today, a little different translation I took it for your use. Come now, you rich, weep and howl for the miseries that are coming upon you. Your riches have rotted, your garments are moth-eating, your gold and silver have corroded, their corrosion will be evident against you and will eat your flesh like fire. You have laid up treasure in the last days. Behold, the wages of the laborers who mowed your field that you kept back by fraud are crying out against you, and the cries of harvesters have reached the ears of the Lord of hosts. You have lived on the earth in luxury and in self-indulgence. You have fattened your hearts in the day of slaughter. You have condemned and murdered the righteous person. He does not resist you. 
Please be seated. Okay, here's the, the biggie that I wrestled with all week. I uh, read this text, and this is how I typically prepare for a sermon. I typically try to you know, have an outline of where we're going to go. I'm going to at least cover this text. And I've tried to read James a multiple of times. And then I usually get up Monday or Tuesday, and I pull out every Bible translation I have, and I read the text I'm going to preach on. And then probably the next day I will pull out the commentaries and read through them and think, did I see it well? Is there any big hole I'm seeing? Then probably about day three I'm going to start thinking, okay, this is how it applies. I got to read through all these translations. I thought I knew who James was addressing, and then I pulled my commentaries down, and I realized I was the only person who had the idea I had. And that kind of spooked me when all of a sudden I'm going to push against what all the, the best Bible scholars are saying, at least the ones I'm reading. So some of you got a text from me, and I decided, in fact, I walked out of my office, I came to Jana and said, Jana, let me read you this text, and you tell me who you think James is writing to. And Jana agreed with me, which made me feel great. You know, we don't always have that happen, but she did. I thought, well, let's double check. Let me drop a note to the elders. Let me drop a note to some of our deacons. Let me drop a note to people I see through the week. And actually, I started getting a whole variety of perspectives. I started talking to Rav, and Rav found a commentator who agreed with me, which made me love Rav even more than I normally did. And, but the biggie for me is, who is this rich people? Most commentators think it's not somebody in the church that James is addressing. Most of them think it must be a wealthy Jewish landowner who's cheating the hired help out of their daily wages. And James might be trying to comfort Christians who are being cheated by somebody. Might even be exploiting them in court in knowing these folks aren't going to do very well. Courts sometimes can be biased. One of the things, and this is me reading into it, I, uh, I once lived in a world where I was pretty confident when I sent an email that there's a good likelihood a government official is going to read my email before the person I sent it to is going to read it, which changed how I wrote things. And James might be writing a letter thinking, you know, it's going to get circulated, and I don't know if I want to name someone specifically. That might have been something that he was thinking of. You'll note the tone is harsh. There's little opportunity for repentance. There's little grace spoken of. So most commentators think when James shifts to you, rich people, it's somebody outside of the church that's doing this to them. But I mentioned this. Uh, there was an older pastor when I started named Royce Dickinson, and occasionally I'll quote him. Royce said a phrase a lot of times when we would get to a difficult point trying to think through things as a church leader, he would say, we believe because we want to believe. And he'd say, make sure that we're aware of our own experiences and biases, because sometimes we read stuff into the text that's our wounds that might not be there. And sometimes even there's an element of uh, healing that we read into the text that is good for us to read, but we have to be aware that others might not see that healing. If our appraisal of experience is that We've been cheated by people outside of church, but every time we come to church, everyone's honest with us. That's probably going to be a really good thing. I hope you never get cheated by somebody at church. But 
that's part of it. And I, I threw out a practical example. For the commentators that I read that says this is somebody outside the church, they would start to say, okay, let me apply this. N.T. Wright talked about the way the whole globe's economy functions, and he does this as a British guy who I think would know how did an empire function. Basically, a small class of people in a dominant nation is going to get the best of everybody else. And in America, this is, you know, we're defined as a post-Christian nation. I talked about this last week. When we can look at coronavirus, it's little, it's easy to document. Native American reservations, African American neighborhoods, and uh, nursing homes really get hard, hit hard. I think that's pointed. There's something with us not being a nation guided by Christian principles that we end up with some people that are more vulnerable. Now, that's kind of me saying I want to preach with both humility and conviction. I don't quite agree with this, but I think thoughtful people, this is their perspective, and it should be thought of. It should be recognized. What if this rich you people is actually someone in the church? And this is where part of the reason I want to sit at a table. What if this is the church that James is writing to, and they're receiving it, and they're thinking, uh... Yeah, that's the guy I'm working for who I also go to church with. Wouldn't that be awful? But about 25% of the commentators, about 40% of the Christians I ask think this is somebody in church, the you people, you rich people. It could be a wealthy Jews who became Christians, but they're still participating in something that's exploitive. And I think Jana gave me this one. What if this is, you know, in Acts 16, there's Lydia. She's a wealthy Jewish seller of purple cloth. She's a real help to the church. Well, what if, you know, that's basically the New Testament's finding a lot of Lydia-like peoples. What if one of them is part of the church but hasn't fully given that portion of her life over to God? And James is saying, okay, we got to deal with this. Your business practice is hurting people. Or if you read... Paul's writing, he writes to a man named Philemon who owns a slave named Onesimus, and history would say slavery wasn't a very good thing to practice. So it's possible. Oh, I just lost my notes. Let's see if I can pull it back up. The dangerous thing of a preacher trying to learn. And then I'll mention this, just the natural reading of the text. I won't read it because I want us to start talking, but we've been in chapter 4. James is using the pronoun you when he talks in the first 12 verses about divisions in church. He's using it next, the chapter we, the section we looked at last week where he's talking about make your business plans acknowledging God's sovereignty. It just to me makes sense that you just keep using you to talk to people in church. It reads like Old Testament prophets. Um, there's the word, the English translation has hull in it, uh, or the English Standard Version, not all translations use it, but if you dig around in the Old Testament, the Greek word that gets translated hall is used a lot in the Old Testament. It's only used one time in the New Testament, and the majority of time it's used, it's talking to the nation of Israel or the Jews. And there's a writer that I follow, and some might think she's too extreme. Her name's Julie Royce. She uses the phrase American Evangelical Industries. And I hope I'm not reading my own wounds into this. I probably am to some extent. But I have observed that in places where you have kind of these elite clusters of Christians in America, they tend to develop systems where a few people have a lot of money and a lot of power, and it doesn't get spread out. And I could see 
James might be writing to something like this. Now, the word is, you're going to have to take this in, it could be somebody at church. When we're applying it, we should probably all wrestle with, are there things I'm doing that create people being more vulnerable, people being exploited? Why should we hope? One, misery's coming. It's going to get here no matter how we cut it. It's coming. The things that we trust in, like our clothes that create an illusion that we're in good shape, that's going to rot. Our wealth, James talks about precious metals, and you know they would have been refining gold and silver and could try to get the corrosion out, but still, all these minerals are going to start to rust. We know this. Our savings won't last for our entire lifetime. That There can be things that no matter how wealthy we are, we're all vulnerable. Our illusions of control get stripped away. Our health will fail. And I'm going to read this as somebody who's lived outside the United States. Missionaries will talk about this amongst themselves. They'll write about it in missions journals. They'll rarely write about it in something where American Christians will read this. But a general pattern in the globe is that people in poor countries die from communicable diseases, which there is usually a simple, inexpensive treatment. They don't have the money to get it. And generally, in the developed world, people die from diseases that are, how do I say this? They're a cumulative lifestyle choice. We've eaten too much food. We've been out too much in the sun. We haven't got enough exercise. We haven't stayed home when we were sick. It's a cumulative choice that eventually is what, where our health collapses. Now, why will these rich people be punished? Because this is a harsh language. It's a language that's not comforting unless you've been cheated all week. If one of you has been cheated all week by somebody at church, this probably feels, oh yeah, I'm glad God saw it. But for most of us, this isn't really comforting. It's convicting. The rich landowners have told their laborers, you come to work for me, I'm going to give you this much at the end of the day, and the day ends, and they don't get paid. They haven't paid their laborers. If the poor guy who's working in the field says, well, I'm going to take you to court, when they go to court, the poor guy who's in the right loses. There's probably forged, incomplete, misleading documents there. But don't forget this. God is described as the Lord of hosts. What that practically means is God. He's the Almighty. He is like a mighty warrior. And all of these angelic armies are his servants. Rich people have lived opulent lives of luxury and indulgence. There's been a very wide economic gap between ordinary laborers and the wealthy. And this gap has resulted in some type of death. Now, a question. Who's the righteous person who was condemned to death? That's mentioned in James chapter 5, verse 6. And again, I hope I'm not being too academic for you. I, again, I read the text. I had four cute sermons, and then I decided... I'm just not convinced this is God's message, but I was convinced we're people God's spirit is moving in. We could figure it out if we talked. Our sins, and I'm going to say this, of exploitation, and now let me even use this. This mobile phone has likely, I can't absolutely document, but I'd say I'm about 80% sure there are minerals in this mobile phone, probably Colton, that come out of places in the world that are unstable, and we always get minerals to keep our phones and computers going. 
And just the fact that we use a phone or a computer probably means that we have somehow profited off of some place in the world that's suffering. That sin that's cumulative in nature that we're all going to be a part of, that ultimately leads to the righteous one, Jesus, the Son of God, giving up his life for us. Our cumulative weight of human sin. Now, our sins of exploitation will cost some human beings of this earth their lives. And I'm not going to push too hard into this one, but we don't have to look hard to see that. Whether it's places in America where the health care is not as good, whether it's places in the developing world that are poorer than they need to be because trade hasn't been fair, the world suffers because of it. Those who suffer in exploitive economic systems live out the life of Christ in the 